0: Welcome to Onco Farm Pod. I'm your host John Bazar. I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, as a reminder, feel free to uh, to find us in the iTunes store, rate us, review us, uh, leave a comment, let us know what you like, what you would like to hear more of. Um, feel free to follow me at Twitter. Uh, my handle's at farmdetinib p h a r m d e e t i n i b, or follow the show at Onco Farm Pod on Twitter. Uh, today we're going to be doing an updates. Um, pod uh, with a little bit more emphasis on uh, the recent um, adjuvant pertuzumab and a lot of discontinuation uh, approvals from the FDA. So, you know, periodically we're going to do these. We're going to talk about, you know, the, the new things that have come out of the FB, FDA, not necessarily new drugs. If a new drug comes out, we'll, we'll try and drop a pod pretty quickly. So, uh, I thought I was ready to leave for the holiday break thought I had, everything was done. I thought the FDA and ODAC had set up shop for the year. Uh, and they left, uh, before uh, I left, They there was a slew of uh, approvals and updates. So let's run through those real quick before we get into the two big ones, in my opinion. So on December 19th, Uh, Regular approval was granted to cabozantinib for renal cell carcinoma, and this is first-line treatment of RCC for cabozantinib. Also on December 19th, um, bosutinib was granted accelerated approval for the treatment of CML in the first line. It was already approved after that, but first-line tried in bosutinib accelerated approval. On December 20th, regular approval was granted for adjuvant pertuzumab based on the affinity trial, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit of depth. Also on December 20th, uh, regular approval was granted to adjuvant nivolumab for melanoma. Now, in my opinion, this is probably the ideal setting for the use of immunotherapy, whether it's pd one pdl one inhibitors. And that's for a disease like melanoma that's relatively resistant traditional, to traditional chemotherapy. And this approvals in the adjuvant setting uh, really kind of meaning two things. One, melanoma with lymph node involvement or metastatic disease that's been completely resected. So a metastatectomy. Um, based on what we think about uh, immunotherapy, it should work best in a disease with a low burden, uh, low tumor burden. so that would be following resection or or not very much disease there. So that makes a lot of sense. and we could probably do a whole pod on that. a whole series of podcasts on uh, uh, on melanoma really going forward. Um, but it, that was December 20th. The following day, it was a busy week here for the FDA at the end of December. December 21st, uh, regular approval to hydroxyurea uh, for pediatric patients uh, with sickle cell disease to decrease painful crises for those 2+. plus. Um, and again, this is all coming from the, the basically the Hemonc approval, so you also get a benign hematologic indication thrown in here. And on December 22nd, the label for nilotinib was updated to include criteria for discontinuing Uh, the drug for patients with CML. We're going to talk about that one in a little bit more depth as well. So let's come back to uh, pertuzumab. So pertuzumab was first approved by the FDA in 2002, and this was for metastatic breast cancer in combination with trastuzumab and docetaxel. So pertuzumab by itself really doesn't have single agent activity. Uh, It's used with trastuzumab. They bind to different epitopes of HER2. And we know that dual HER2 treatment is better than single HER2 treatment. A lot of exciting data in the last five to 10 years uh, demonstrating that. That was 2002, the initial approval of pertuzumab for metastatic breast cancer. In 2013, pertuzumab was granted accelerated approval for neoadjuvant treatment in combination with chemotherapy. That's based off pathologic complete response rate. So neoadjuvant chemo is chemo given prior to surgery. Pathologic complete response rate is after the chemo is given, the, the surgeon goes in and, and removes the tissue. They can't find any breast cancer there uh, in what's been removed. That's a pathologic complete response rate. So that was the endpoint for the accelerated approval for neoadjuvant for, pertuzumab. This approval is for for the adjuvant treatment that also, uh, the FDA, say, FDA says, fulfills the criteria for the accelerated approval for neoadjuvants, So now we've got pertuzumab for neoadjuvant, adjuvant, and metastatic treatment. And this is based on the affinity trial by von Minkwitz, or maybe it's von Minkwitz, uh, New England Journal of Medicine 2017, uh, published online first in June um, in print in July. So these were HER2-positive patients, and these were, uh, defined as an IHC or immunohipa- um, immunohipasto- uh 3+, and uh, 10% or more of the immunoreactive cells, or ERB-B2 amplification. ERB-B2 is the gene that encodes uh, HER2. So HER2-positive patients that had local excision of their disease. So they had to meet those criteria. HER2 had to have surgery, and they had to either be node-positive, that was one cohort, node-negative, but a tumor size of more than one centimeter, or no negative with a tumor size of half to one centimeter, plus one high risk criteria. And those high risk criteria were uh, nuclear grade three, so uh, highly aggressive, poorly differentiated grade, uh, ER or PR negative, and then age less than 35. So you had three different cohorts. Now, partway through the, the study, they admitted the protocol to cease accrual of node-negative patients, and they said that this was to ensure that they had the pre-expected number of node-positive and node-negative patients. So here are patients, they're randomized to chemotherapy uh, plus trastuzumab, or chemotherapy plus the combination of trastuzumab plus pertuzumab, and the chemotherapy uh, was, one of three regimens. So it was 5-FU and anthracycline and cyclophosphamide followed by a taxane. Uh, anthracycline, cyclophosphamide by themselves without the, without, the F, uh, or the, without the 5-FU followed by a taxane. Or docetaxel and carboplatin. So we had 24,000, sorry, 2,400, 2,400 in, uh, in each group. Uh, they had to begin chemotherapy within eight weeks of surgery, which is uh, kind of the goal. Uh, 37.4% and 34.8%, so similar numbers had um, one to three nodes that were positive. About 25% in each group had four plus positive nodes. Uh, overall, 78.1% and 77.7%, so pretty similar numbers here in our baseline demographics received an anthracycline-based regimen, so that would include FAC, followed by um uh, taxane or AC followed by taxane and then 22 percent basically in each group received docetaxel and carboplatin and most of these patients were ER or PR positive uh, about 64 percent each group. Uh, both the mean and the median age in these groups were 51 years so when the mean and median are the same age or the same that suggests that we have a fairly normally distributed patient population. Alright so those are our patients. They're pretty standard HER2 positive patients. Um, and this study has, has more node-positive patients than maybe you would see in, in other studies, again, because they stopped to curl of node-negative. And they did have some strict criteria for node-negative patients. And that kind of makes sense. If you're going to see a benefit, it's probably going to be in a harder-to-treat disease state because chemotherapy plus trastuzumab for these patients does pretty well. Uh, the primary endpoint in this study was Uh, invasive disease-free survival uh, as assessed by stratified log rank test uh, with ap value pre-specified alpha of less than 0.05. So invasive disease-free survival uh, and an invasive disease-free survival event would be invasive breast cancer on the same side as the original breast cancer, so ipsilateral invasive recurrence, um, same side local regional disease, so say uh, chest wall recurrence by itself or or, or disease recurrence in a lymph node, right there on the same side. Uh, distant disease of any kind of breast cancer, uh, invasive breast cancer on the other breast, so contralateral uh, disease or death from any cause. So invasive disease-free survival, I call this IDFS. That was the primary endpoint. So they uh, had expected uh, in their statistical analysis section, they talk about what they expected from the placebo group. Remember, so this was chemo and trastuzumab. They expected those folks to have a three-year invasive disease-free survival rate of 89.2%, so just under 90%. What they saw in the placebo group was a little bit higher than that at 93.2%, and the the pertuzumab group had an invasive disease-free survival of 94.1%. That yielded, and this is their primary endpoint, a hazard ratio of 0.81, with a confidence interval of 0.66 to 1.00 so our confidence interval touches one and this p-value is stated 0.045 so just barely under five percent but the confidence interval does cross one and this is an absolute difference of less than one percent in three-year invasive disease-free survival and we're not going to see overall survival mature for a long time uh, with this study. a minor difference here in the overall population. If you look at the node positive patients, you see an invasive disease-free survival rate of 92% with pertuzumab, 90.2% with placebo. Uh, that's statistically significant. Uh, that's a that's a larger magnitude of benefit for our node positive patients. Um, there also appears to be a benefit for hormone negative patients, but that was not statistically significant. Uh, P of 0.08. So this appears to be uh, map adds a little bit uh, on top of adjuvant map. Let's look at the toxicity criteria here. So grade 3, or the, the uh, not criteria, uh, our safety uh, results. So grade 3 diarrhea. So this would be diarrhea. Grade 3 diarrhea would be the diarrhea that lands you in the hospital, basically. It's a simple way to think of our grading. Grade 3 gets you in the hospital. Grade 4 gets you to the ICU. Grade 5 would be uh would be a fatal adverse effect. So grade three diarrhea, 9.8% in the pertuzumab group and 3.7% in the placebo group. And there's a little bias here in the reporting of the safety endpoints, which I'll touch on in a second. Primary cardiac event, 0.7%, so low number less than 1%. 0.7% in pertuzumab, 0.2% placebo. Uh, New, York Associ- New York Heart Association class three or four heart failure and a more than 10% decrease in ejection fraction to below 50%, this is gonna sound bad, three times more likely in the pertuzumab group at 0.6% compared to 0.2%. So, um, one of the helpful things whenever you're evaluating a study, especially if it's published in a big uh, reputable journal like the New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet, is when that is published in print, there usually will be an accompanying editorial um, to, uh, by an expert in the field to give you you know the expert's opinion uh, and evaluation, of it, which is helpful if you're someone like me who's kind of an oncology generalist that, that works with patients with acute leukemia, chronic leukemias, all solid tumors. Um, hard for me to be an expert in just breast cancer, so it's useful to hear this from others. So this accompanying editorial uh, by Kathy D. Miller uh, it's called questioning our affinity for more. Um, so, talking about efficacy, and I'm, I'm quoting here: the addition of pertuzumab resulted in an absolute 0.9 percentage point lower rate of recurrence or death at three years. Although the absolute benefit was larger in patients with lymph node improvement, even those, uh, even in these patients, the rate of invasive disease-free survival was a mere 1.8 percentage points lower in the pertuzumab group than placebo. So she's not terribly impressed with the efficacy here. Although there is benefit, uh, it's just a small benefit. Uh, Getting on to the toxicity though, here the investigators, and I'm quoting again, here the investigators present a biased analysis. Toxic effects were reported in the entirety for all patients randomly assigned to receive placebo but only for the patients in the pertuzumab group who actually received pertuzumab. Cardiac toxic events during anthracycline therapy that precluded the administration of any HER2-targeted treatment are included in the analysis of the placebo group, but excluded from the analysis of the pertuzumab group. So what's happening here is everybody in the placebo group is reported in the safety analysis. Only those who went through the chemotherapy and then also went on to receive pertuzumab are included in the safety analysis of pertuzumab. So let's say you have... Two patients randomized: one to the pertuzumab group, one to the placebo group. They both have a big drop in their EF during chemotherapy, prior to the monoclonal antibody administration. All right. So remember, they're basically most of these patients got AC followed by a taxane in combination with the uh, HER2 targeted therapy. So let's say during the anthracycline treatment, patients had an event of heart failure. Well, those patients would not go on to receive monoclonal antibodies targeting HER2. Now, if those, if that patient were in the placebo group, they're included in the safety analysis. In the pertuzumab group, they're not included in the safety analysis. So there, there's a little bit of bias there. And we're only talking, we're talking fewer than 40 patients here, but still, uh, why not compare an apple to an apple? Uh, a little bit puzzling. So maybe the um, the toxicity is greater in real world for pertuzumab patients, um, we don't know. In in any event this is now approved, Uh, so folks may have already been doing this based on results of the the affinity study, certainly their evidence is is there for that. Um, uh, Dr. Miller's uh, editorial goes on to talk about the need to identify who really benefits from adjuvant Um, dual HER2 treatment with trastuzumab and pertuzumab. Again, pertuzumab, really no uh, single agent activity to speak of by itself. So certainly node-positive patients benefit more than node-negative. I don't see any reason to do this in our node-negative patients. Um, Node-positive patients with additional risk factors, say hormone-negative, young age, would probably make sense for those patients as well. But that comes with, um, you know, uh, an basically a 1 in 10% chance of hospitalization due to diarrhea. And again, you're going to see that diarrhea in any uh, you know, EGFR family targeting uh, therapy. All right, so that's the affinity study uh, that led to the approval of adjuvant pertuzumab uh, on top of trastuzumab. Let's talk about the, uh, the updated label to nilotinib. So this is something that's been coming for a long time. In fact, uh, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network has criteria and have had it for a while on discontinuing tyrosine kinase inhibitor therapy in patients with chronic myeloid leukemia or CML. The FDA has has updated the label to say this this can be done based on the label for nilotinib. After three years of stable nilotinib treatment and a sustained molecular response, uh, MR 4.5 for a year. So basically a four and a half log reduction in BCR-ABL transcripts, uh, the ratio of BCR-ABL transcripts to ABLE. And this is based off of two studies, and I'll briefly cover these. Uh, The first one is NS Freedom. This was 190 patients. These were newly diagnosed CML patients. um, And they had to have been on the lot for three years and had sustained molecular response for at least a year. And then they could stop. So of the 190 that stopped, 51.6 had uh, treatment-free remission, meaning that they were able to remain in remission uh, and have their their levels their BCR BCR able levels stay low without treatment. Uh, So 51.6 treatment free remission for one year uh, that dropped very slightly by two years to 48.9%. So basically, if you're on newly diagnosed AML on nilotinib for three years, achieve MR four and a half, so a really deep molecular response. Um, and you have that molecular response for at least a year it's a 50-50 chance that if you stop the drug you're going to still be in remission um, two years later that's pretty promising Uh, and we spent uh, the first part of the pod talking about affinity and marginal benefit from adding a drug here we're seeing continued benefit with removing a drug which is great Uh, now 50% 50% remained in remission. What happened to the 50% who lost their molecular response? Well, 98 point, or 98.9% regained a major molecular response, which would be a three-fold log uh, reduction. And then 92% uh, achieved an MR4, 4.5 at the two-year data cutoff. So you basically 50-50 if you stop it, after that three years of taking if you have the MR4, or 4.5, uh, 50-50 chance at that point, if you stop the drug, will you remain in remission? And if you don't, better than 90% chance you'll regain your molecular response. Uh, the other study for this approval was the NS-STOP, which was 126 patients who had received nilotinib for three years after switching from a matnib. So these patients had some issues with imatinib, uh, whether it be intolerance or some sort of issue, um, not, you know, basically a uh, whatever it would be. So three years in nilotinib, in this case, 57.9% had treatment-free remission at 48 weeks or one year, 53.2% at two years. So again, right there around that 50-50 mark. And of the, the 50% who did not maintain remission after nilotinib discontinuation, 92.9% regained either MR4 or molecular response 4.5. So this is something that's been coming for a while. I know a couple patients who have successfully discontinued uh, TKIs for CML, um, and uh, if you're going to do this, and uh, patients I recommend this, know that at least for nilotinib, there are pretty strict criteria in the package insert to refer to. Um, off-label discontinuation is uh, is worth discussing, and before you would do that, I'd encourage you to go to the the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, or the NCCN CML guidelines and look at the the criteria they have for discontinuation of TKI therapy. There are a couple things to think about. One, is the patient a candidate for TKI discontinuation? So have um, they've been consistent in having their levels drawn, um, continually taking it for at least two years uh, in general. The nilotinib uh, uh, label is for three years. And then second, what are the the monitoring criteria that you have to follow thereafter to reinstitute your TKI if they lose their uh, molecular response. So that's our pod for today. Uh, I hope 2018 is off to a great start for all of you, and we will talk to you later down the road. Happy trails.